Welcome to the Trinity Baptist Church podcast with Dr. Robert Creech. For more information about our church and to keep up to date with the latest resources, please visit our website at www.trinitybaptist.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, people of God. The Lord is with you. Sometimes, in order to have a real conversation, we need to be face-to-face. There are some things we can't talk about with emails and text messages and such as that. We need to look each other in the eye and ask the questions that are hard, uh, deal with the things that are important, and hold a fierce conversation. Some some topics just require that. We need to be face-to-face, away from the group and its influence. In the Gospel of John, Jesus frequently withdraws from the crowd to look an individual in the eye and to have one of those fierce conversations about some of the most important issues in life. He didn't shy away from that. And the Gospel of John allows us to listen in, sort of a fly on the wall, to these personal conversations between Jesus and some seeker. One of those topics that is really best done face-to-face is the conversation about grace. Grace is one of those words we use a lot in religious life. I think it showed up in every song we sang this morning, Jacob. I know that was intentional. Thank you. Grace is, the way we've learned to describe it, is God's unmerited favor toward us, something we don't deserve, but God gives to us out of who God is, not based on who we are and what we've done. Grace is what we are saved by. We, we call it amazing grace. We sing of it, and it, it, it is one of those things that is at the core of our faith as believers in Jesus. But that's one of those topics that is not easily discussed in our world because our world is not structured around grace, is it? Our world is structured around earning. We've been schooled in the culture of earning Uh, Brennan Manning, who, if you haven't run across this fellow, is somebody worth reading. He has a book called The Ragamuffin Gospel. Uh, Brennan Manning was a Catholic priest, and late in his life, he succumbed to alcoholism. It was a big struggle for him, and God brought him out of that, set him free. And uh, Brennan Manning went around the world just uh, talking about the amazing grace of God. In fact, He's such a believer in grace. Reading this book makes me uncomfortable as a Baptist. He is really serious about the grace of God. I heard him speak one time, and he steps into uh, the, to the pulpit or the, uh, to the podium wearing these old beat-up clothes with big, bright patches all over them. And he considers himself a ragamuffin that God has saved. Well, Brennan Manning says, put bluntly, The American church accepts grace in theory, but denies it in practice. By and large, the gospel of grace is neither proclaimed, understood, nor lived. Too many Christians are living in the house of fear and not in the house of love. 
See, we find it difficult to understand grace in a culture that's constantly telling us we have to earn everything that we have. There's no free lunch. You get what you deserve. You want money? You work for it. You want love? Earn it. You want mercy? Well, show that you deserve it. Do unto others before they do unto you. Watch out for welfare lines and shiftless street people and affluent students with student loans. It's all a con game. By all means, give everyone what they deserve, but not a penny more. This is our our culture. It's a culture of earning. We earn our way through life. We earn our allowances as children. We earn our grades. We earn our degrees. We earn our salaries. We earn respect. We earn our promotions. We earn our awards and rewards. And grace has very little to do with the way that we live our lives out day after day. So we find it in practice hard to give to others and difficult to receive from others. We talk about it in theory and we can define it. We can sing about it. But living it is sometimes a challenge for us. There's a story about grace in the Gospel of John. It begins the last verse of chapter 7, chapter 7, verse 53, and goes through chapter 8, verse 11, a story about grace. But before we talk about that story, in the interest of full disclosure, I need to tell you a little bit about how the story came to us. Now, all of you care that carry Bibles, these days Bibles are replete with all kinds of footnotes, and I suspect that if you look at the footnote in your Bible around chapter 7, verse 53, there will be a statement that says something like, most ancient authorities lack 7.53 through 8.11. Some of your footnotes will give you more details than that, but just this simply statement that this passage doesn't show up in all ancient manuscripts, in fact, in most. And I just thought you might want to know a little bit about that before we go on, since it's in your footnote in your Bible and you might be asking questions of me later. I'll just go ahead and tell you what I know about it now, okay? The passage doesn't show up in the Gospel of John in the Eastern Church, that was centered in Constantinople for about a thousand years. It's around 900 AD that the first Greek manuscripts in the Eastern Church of Gospel of John show this. And none of the early commentators on the Gospel of John in the Eastern Church ever comment on this story. They didn't seem to be aware of it. In the Western Church, more Latin-speaking, centered in Rome, it does begin to show up, and sometimes kind of early, but not in a widespread kind of way. Uh, St. Jerome translated the Hebrew and Greek text into a common Latin version in the late 4th century, about 380 A.D., and he included the story there in the 4th century. But even the manuscripts that do contain this passage, it shows up in a lot of different ways. Some of them have the passage, but mark it with an asterisk to indicate that it's questionable. Some manuscripts include it not at this part of the Gospel of John, but at the end of the Gospel of John after chapter 21, verse 25. Some manuscripts don't include it in John at all, but include it in the Gospel of Luke. Some following Luke 24, 53 at the end of the Gospel of Luke, and some following Luke 21, 38, that last week of Jesus' life. And some manuscripts included in John, but following chapter 7, verse 36, not chapter 7, verse 52. So, by and large, most early manuscripts don't contain it. So what do we do with that? That raises this important question. Is this story that we're about to talk about to be considered scripture? 
Well, clearly I think so, or I wouldn't be preaching about it this morning. But I look at it as the earliest church struggled to find a way to preserve and maintain and sustain this story as part of their tradition, as a part of their life, because it was so clearly an important one to them. And they struggled to fit it into Luke's gospel or John's gospel at various points, but it was seen to be important to the earliest church. There's a New Testament scholar named Leon Morris, an evangelical scholar from Australia. And in the New International Commentary on the New Testament, he wrote these words, and I agree with Morris. He says, but if we cannot feel that this is part of John's gospel, we can feel that the story is true to the character of Jesus. Throughout the history of the church, it has been held that whoever wrote it, this little story is authentic. It rings true. It speaks to our condition. It's worth our while to study it, though not as an authentic part of John's writing. The story is undoubtedly very ancient. Most authorities agree it is referred to by Papias, who was a second century Christian writer. In other words, although the story is very likely not part of the original Gospel of John, it seems to be an authentic story about Jesus that the early church preserved, as they preserved many of those stories that are in the Gospels. But it is a story that deserves our study and our faith. Now let's go back to the story about grace. I think she would never, ever hear the sound, the thud of a stone hitting the ground again without thinking about the grace of God. She'd probably been set up by a group of Pharisees who were intent on trapping Jesus in a statement so they could have a way to accuse him. A man who was not her husband had persuaded her to spend the night with him. When morning came, she suddenly found this secret tryst interrupted by a group of religious leaders who stormed in her room without a warrant. They cared nothing about her and very little about the law in that moment. They only wanted to use her as bait to lure Jesus into a trap. They dragged her through the streets until they reached the temple court where Jesus had already attracted a crowd and was sitting down in the teacher's position teaching the people. And they stood her directly in front of him. And then they tried to spring their trap. They said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law of Moses, it's commanded us to stone such women. What do you have to say? They said this to test him so they might have some charge to bring against him. Now, there's a pretty big irony here. I, I don't know if you catch it right away. I don't think a woman could be caught alone in the act of committing adultery. Where was the man? Was he part of this plot? Were they truly concerned about the law of Moses? He would be standing there with her because here's what the law of Moses says about this subject. In Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, it says, If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. Deuteronomy 22, 22 says, If a man is caught lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman as well as the woman. It's really explicit in the law. And if they were interested in the law primarily, there would be two people standing in front of Jesus. But as it is, uh, they have set her up and set him up to trap him. And here's the trap they hope to spring. Jesus has a reputation 
of opening his arms and demonstrating God's mercy and compassion and grace to all kinds of sinners. He had taken in tax collectors like Matthew and Zacchaeus and invited them into the kingdom of God. He had touched the untouchable lepers and cleansed them, invited them into the kingdom of God. Groups that are just roughly described by the gospel writers as uh, sinners and prostitutes came to him and sought God's grace and forgiveness. They were attracted to the holiness of Jesus' life and to the grace of God that he had demonstrated to him. That was his reputation. He had done that on lots of occasions. And these people were regular followers of his. But the law of Moses was clear on this point. People guilty of adultery were to be stoned to death. It was a capital offense. And so they bring her before him, guilty, caught in the act, deserving condemnation and execution according to the law. If he agreed with her stoning, then he would look something of the hypocrite about all the other things that he had taught and done. If he disagreed and contradicted the law of Moses, well, then they could get him on that charge. So they wanted to squeeze him in between the stone tablets of the law and the tender-hearted mercies of God that he had been preaching. Rocks in hand, ready to go on his instruction, they waited for his reply. The law of Moses says she's to be put to death. What do you say? Such a dramatic moment right now. Jesus said nothing. Uh, he'd been sitting down. Now he bends down onto the ground and begins to scribble in the dirt. It's the only record in Scripture we have of Jesus writing anything. We don't know what he was writing. We don't know if he was bending over doing this just to manage his anger for a moment at this injustice and mistreatment and just waiting to sort of get things ready. We don't know if he was contemplating how he would reply best. Uh, there are some dramatic interpretations of this who think Jesus was writing down the sins of those people who were gathered around for them to see to let them know that he knew who they were. Well, that would be nice in a movie, but I, that's, that's a lot of supposition, isn't it? But anyway, he's down there writing. And they just keep asking, what do we do? Shall we stone her or not? They kept on pelting him with these accusing questions. And finally, Scripture says, he straightened up stood up and said to them, let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again, he bent down on the ground and began to write. He basically affirmed the law of Moses and said, yes, you're right. The law says she should be executed. And so execute her. But the sinless one among you throws the first stone. Well, they begin to reflect about what that might mean and who they were and the silence was pretty deafening. And then the silence is broken by this sound of grace, one big rock after another thudding to the ground. One after another, large, adulterous woman, stoning-sized rocks begin to hit the ground, and one by one the elders in the group began to withdraw, and then the younger ones after them. The warmth of the grace of God in Jesus' statement had begun to melt the frozen-hearted accusers, and they disappeared into the crowd. Until after a bit, it was just the woman standing there before Jesus. All of her guilt, all of her shame, she is standing before the one person in that room, that place, that was qualified to stone her, the only one without sin. And that's when this brief, fierce conversation about grace took place. 
Jesus stood up again from scribbling in the sand, dusted off his hands, looks at her. He had stood up for her a few moments before, before her accusers. Now he stands up to set her free. He stands up and the story says, Jesus straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they? The ones who condemned you. Has no one condemned you? She must have been trembling, her heart beating a thousand beats a minute, sweaty palms and sweaty brow, and she'd been that close to being stoned to death. Jesus asked her to look around and count her accusers. She lifts her eyes and surveys the space, and she's surrounded by big rocks, but no more glaring, accusing stares. And she says to Jesus, no one, sir. There's another pause. What's going to happen next? Is he going to lecture her, dress her down for what she's done, preach a sermon? What does she expect? But then she hears the sound of grace more pure and powerful than if a million rocks had fallen around her. She hears Jesus' voice and these powerful words that change her life. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on, do not sin again. He called her into the kingdom of God. He invited her into the grace of the kingdom. He invited her as he had invited Matthew and Zacchaeus and prostitutes and other sinners. He invited her to repent, to change her life, to receive God's grace and kingdom, the life that is truly life. And in that moment, I suspect her trembling stops and her heart rate slows and she wipes the dirt and sweat from her brow and her palms and she turns and walks away into a different life, a life that would never have been hers had it not been for Jesus in this moment. She walks away and leaves behind her guilt and her shame and her condemnation and walks away free, uncondemned by God. Now, that was a brief conversation, but it was a fierce one. It was about this intense subject of grace, about how God regards us as sinners and what God in God's grace offers us as sinners. It was a fierce conversation because it wasn't theoretical or abstract about grace. It, it was concrete, personal. It was about this person caught in this sin at this time, a sin that her religion and her society both condemned, a sin that was a capital sin, and yet Jesus offered her grace and forgiveness and the opportunity to begin life all over again. What a beautiful conversation. Grace is difficult to grasp in a world that be believes in giving people what they deserve. Jesus stopped an execution, a legal execution, of a guilty person caught in the very act of the sin of which she was accused. But he called on the executioners to examine themselves which one was innocent. Now, we had time for two sermons today. We could spend some time talking about the Pharisees and their judgment and condemnation of others and how we need to learn not to judge and condemn others. And that would be another worthy and fierce conversation. Maybe some of you can take that up in Bible study in the hour afterwards after as you take up this text as well. But I want to focus on the conversation's grace dimension. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Somehow, life in the kingdom of God is found in truly hearing and living out of both pieces of that statement. Neither do I condemn you. 
Go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. Think back about how much of life is spent receiving condemnation from those who are part of our lives. Sometimes people who ordinarily love us, but they can with a raised eyebrow or a wrinkled face or a turning away or by their silence or by harsh words, pour condemnation upon us for all kinds of reasons. Parents, we've received the condemnation of parents and of our children, of our siblings, of our spouses. We receive condemnations from coworkers and uh, total strangers. Condemnation flows to us in a lot of different ways. All of us have been on the receiving end of that at one time or another. And that's real enough. But worse than that is the condemnation of ourselves that we allow to live rent-free in our heads. Having grown up in a grace-free, earning-focused, condemning world, we carry that around with us, and many of us spend most of our day condemning ourselves for one thing or another. It is far too common an experience. We stand in condemnation over our own life, never feeling accepted or acceptable to ourselves or to anyone. And yet Jesus said to this woman, I do not condemn you. There is a word here about freedom, and it's a hard truth to hear and receive, that God does not condemn us. And for those of us who have found faith in Jesus Christ, <clears throat> to continue to live with condemnation is an unnecessary way to live. Hear Paul's words in Romans chapter 8. He says in verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. A little further down in that chapter, he says in verse 33 and following, who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what grace is about. To truly believe this and live out of it is to find a kind of freedom that makes the gospel truly good news, that God in Christ forgives our sins. As far as the east is from the west, the psalmist says, he separates our sin from us. He remembers them no more, the prophet Jeremiah says. He buries them in the depths of the sea, the psalmist says. There is no condemnation to those who place their trust in Jesus Christ. That's good news, all right, but it can be hard to believe and even harder to live in a world that's earning-based. The story has a second truth that's pretty difficult to grasp also. Neither do I condemn you Go and sin no more, Jesus tells the woman. He tells her to repent, to change her mind, to change her life, to go break off this relationship and never return to it again. She's not to quench her thirst any longer at the wells of relationships or pleasure. Her life is supposed to be, her thirst is supposed to be satisfied in God alone. She, her life is to change, not in order for her to receive God's grace, but because she has received God's grace. This is a hard one for us to grasp because it's not the way our world works. We don't clean up our lives in order to make ourselves acceptable to God. That's plain. Jesus tells her here she's free of condemnation before she has even a, a slight chance to turn her life around. She is forgiven 
before she is sent away to change. He doesn't make it conditional. He doesn't say, if you go clean your life up, then I will not condemn you. He said, I do not condemn you. Now go and sin no more. It is grace that's supposed to empower and motivate the heart to change. Because we have received his grace, then we want to live like forgiven people. Because we have been given a reprieve from a death sentence, we want to live before God in love and faithfulness. Because we've been let off, because we've been freed, we want to live out of this second chance. That's how it's supposed to work. But we who struggle to believe in grace at all certainly struggle to think that we're supposed to come to God without first doing something to deserve it. But that's what makes grace grace. We don't deserve it. We don't change our lives in order to qualify. We don't change our lives in order to earn. We change life because God's grace has already been poured out upon us. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says this. He says that once we were dead in trespasses and sin. I can tell you something about people who are dead. They can do absolutely nothing to bring themselves to life. They, they can't try hard enough, work hard enough, do anything to bring They are totally helpless. And we were, he said, dead in our trespasses and sin. We can't do anything to deserve life. But Paul goes on in Ephesians 2. He says, we were dead in trespasses and sin. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even though we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together through Christ by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. The good works, the changed life, is the result of grace, not the cause of it. Grace is the root. The good works, the changed life, is the fruit. We can't earn it or deserve it, but we can live out of it and begin to see, by the grace of God, our lives change. Well, the story ends there. There's not a second chapter or some piece that tells us in a footnote what happened to the woman's life. So that's always, for me, an opportunity, an invitation to imagination. What do you think happened to her? What do you think was her future from that point on? I imagine this woman, years later, looking at her children in bed at night or kissing her husband goodbye as he walks down the road to leaves the house, I imagine her smiling with gratitude at the grace that was shown to her one morning in the temple. I imagine the tears that she felt well up every time she heard something heavy fall to the earth around her, a bit of startling, but the sound of grace, like those rocks dropping that day. I imagine a life changed by a fierce conversation about grace. Let's pray together. Father, we do speak of grace and sing of grace so often, but you know our hearts and you know how 
we walk about in condemnation, how quickly we are, how quick we are to condemn ourselves or to condemn people around us for the least thing, and how deaf we are to these words of Jesus, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. Words of Paul, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray you would set us free to live out of that, out of grace, and to be able to show it to others by the way we live in the freedom ourselves. We ask in Christ's name, amen. We hope you enjoyed your segment of the Trinity Baptist Church podcast with Dr. Robert Creech. Join us next week for another segment. For more information about our church, please visit our website at trinitybaptist.org.